Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. An abbreviated 510K. Do you know what this is? Do you know how to use this, how to leverage this potential pathway for getting your product to market? Well, if you're like most, the answer is probably not. Did you know that only 2% of 510Ks have gone via the abbreviated 510K path? Not very many people are using this uh, approach. Maybe it's a viable uh, opportunity for you. So on today's episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, Mike Drews from Vascular Science and I dive into different types of 510Ks and specifically go a little bit deeper into understanding the abbreviated 510K path. Hello and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight, John Spear. And today we're going to dive into a topic that, you know, frankly, I, I bet few of you even really know the nuances of this topic, and that's why we're doing it today. The topic is centered around the FDA's abbreviated 510K. You may not have even known that such a thing existed. And with me to dive into to the details of this topic is my good friend, Mike Drews of Vascular Sciences. Mike, welcome. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. All right. So, Mike, you and I recently had a discussion on this past, this new thing that uh, is in the recent press from FDA, the fast track to, to 510K. And during the course of that discussion, we postulated that that based on what we were reading and and observing and speculating that, boy, this really sounds like uh, an abbreviated 510K. So you know, we talked about it and we thought, hey, might be a good topic to, to educate the medical device industry a little bit more on the abbreviated 510K. Well, you're exactly right, John. Um, I think this conversation dovetails quite nicely on um, uh, what was announced this past December, what's being marketed as sort of the uh, new 510K alternative. And in our last podcast, you and I both discussed that maybe this is really not as new as some people would like to think. It's just sort of uh, um, highlighting what we've had for a very long time, and that is the abbreviated 510K. Yeah, and, and I guess that might be a good place to start. Well, let's, let's dive into what are the different types of 510K and how do they differ? So can you take a moment and uh, give a little bit of an overview of the different 510K types? Absolutely, John. Uh, so obviously everybody in, is in the audience is very familiar with the 510K. Here in the United States, it's clearly the workhorse of the medical device industry. Um, in fact, the vast majority of medical devices that come onto the market, greater than um, uh, 90% of them are brought to market under this 510K program. But what a lot of people don't know is that there's different types of 510Ks. So the three principal types, just to quickly review, uh, first, we have the traditional. Uh, second is the special. 
And then the third, which is the topic of today's conversation, is the abbreviated. Now, just to set the stage so we can do a little compare and contrast, let's let's do a sort of a quick review and in, in, in compare and contrast of these three types. So starting with the traditional. This is the most common. This is the one that most people are probably familiar with. Um, and the, the essence of the traditional 510K is that we have to show substantial equivalence. Substantial equivalence is important in all 510K types, but we show substantial equivalence to an existing medical device, a so-called predicate device, a device that's already on the market here in the United States. It could be one of our previous devices, or it can be a competitor's device. Uh, so a traditional 510K involves showing substantial equivalence to an existing device. A special 510K, uh, the difference there is it can be used in, in a few different circumstances, but the most common circumstance, and I know, John, you and I both have a lot of experience doing this, is when we have a device already on the market and we make some sort of a change or modification to it. Um, so rather than um, than submitting a full-blown traditional 510K to let FDA know of our change, and by the way, that change could be either in labeling or in design or in manufacturing technique. Um, instead of doing a traditional 510K to let FDA know about that change, we do what's called a special 510K. And again, that's the topic really of a different discussion, but the emphasis there is to show that that change in our design or what have you um, is still substantially equivalent to our existing device already on the market. So a moment ago, I said with the traditional, your predicate um, uh, can be an, one of your existing devices or a competitor's for a special 510K, almost by definition, the predicate needs to be your existing device. I'm not sure you could make a change to a competitor's device and uh, submit it to the FDA as a special 510K. It's an interesting question, John, um, but I'm not sure if we could do that. Um, and so any questions or comments on the first two types, John, before we get into the uh, abbreviated? Yeah, just you know, comment. I mean, and and uh, folks, uh, Mike is, I would say, a specialist, uh, a ninja, so to speak, when it comes to uh, regulatory strategy. And you know, a, a lot of companies will leverage traditional 510ks as maybe um, kind of an, um, a first entry, so to speak, into the market, and then leverage the special 510k as they make enhancements or improvements to their products. I mean, a lot of, a lot of pros to that. Some, uh, sometimes there are cons to that. But, but certainly as you uh, start to figure out your regulatory strategy, Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences is a guy that, that uh, you should reach out to and, and chat with about that. Well, that's very kind of you to say, John. Thank you very much. And I'm curious because you've got, obviously, a lot of experience in this industry. Um, this is something that I just thought of literally in the last few seconds. Do you think it's possible for a company to submit a special 510K based on a change or modification to a device that they do not own, but it's a competitor's device? So a competitor has a device on the market. They, you, your company wants to make a change to that, and therefore you make a you submit a special 510k as opposed to a traditional. Do you think that would even be possible? Well, you know, you want to talk about possible fast tracks. <laughs> um, potentially, that's a, that's a pretty innovative way to think about it. 
I mean, I, I don't have any firsthand experience doing so, and I'm not aware of anybody doing so. But but uh, I can assure you that after uh, we chat here today, that that I'm going to dive into that a little bit. I, I wonder if there's even a, a possibility to explore that as a, a possible I, avenue. I think it's it's an intriguing intriguing question, John. And you know, one of the things, not to be uh, arrogant by any means, but one of the things I do pride myself on is thinking outside the regulatory box and doing things that nobody else has done before, doing them for the first time. So that's something that we can think about, and perhaps we'll, we'll talk about yeah. it in a different discussion in the future. So yeah, let's move on yeah. to the subject of, of, of today's topic, and that's the abbreviated 510K. Um, so like the other two types of 510Ks that I already talked about, we still need to show substantial equivalence, but the crux of the abbreviated 510K is we don't show substantial equivalence to another device either one of our existing devices or a competitor's device. Instead, we show substantial equivalence to a recognized standard or perhaps a guidance document or a special control. Um, this is oftentimes what I refer to a paper comparison because you're not doing head-to-head testing. You know, you're not testing your competitor's device and your device using the same methodology and then comparing the data, comparing the results. This is simply a paper comparison. And when you do this, you, you essentially demonstrate this substantial equivalence to a recognized standard um, using what's called a declaration of conformity, which is nothing more than a fancy-schmancy legal way of saying that um, our device conforms to or meets this um, recognized standard, this guidance, this special control, what have you. Um, I don't want to get too much into the details, but FDA did put out a guidance on the use of consensus standards uh, about a decade ago, back in 2007. I'm happy to provide a link to that guidance for your audience as part of this podcast. Um, And one other thing to note about the abbreviated 510K when it comes to the demonstrating substantial equivalence to the recognized standard, you, the manufacturer, do not have to do it yourself. You can hire a third party. This is not to be confused with third-party review. That's something completely different. But you can hire a third party to do that um, substantial equivalence comparison, that paper comparison for you, and issue a declaration of conformity on your behalf. Um, But to be fair, that's not unique to the abbreviated 510K. Any company, if they wanted to, they could sub out part or all of their substantial equivalence testing to any third party that they want uh, to do it in a traditional or even in a special 510K. But in the abbreviated 510K, FDA clearly spells that out as an option. Yeah, that's interesting. And I guess you right away what I'm starting to think about is, okay, you know, it seems like, yeah, the abbreviated, I I don't need to compare to a predicate per se. I can leverage a consensus standard and make it a declaration of conformity, so to speak. Um, I'm right away, you know, curious as to um, learn more about these consensus standards and, and this guidance that you mentioned. So, folks, we will share that a link to that standard. But it's certainly something that you'd want to check out because there are some standards that may apply to your product. And, and may you know make the path a little bit uh, less nebulous, so to speak, as far as as five ten Ks are concerned. This abbreviated path might be something that that is of interest to your and, and your organization. 
But interestingly, um, and we've been talking about this before the podcast, there are some interesting statistics about how often each of these 510K methods are used. And, and I guess I was a little surprised that, boy, that abbreviated doesn't get much love, does it? That's correct, John. Um, in, the, in doing a little uh, preparation for today's discussion, I did take a look at the most currently available statistics uh, from the Medufa performance report. This is as of November 2017, what's the most currently available. So for the first 10 months of fiscal year 2017, um, of the uh, almost 3,400 510Ks that were uh, cleared, um, about 82% of them were cleared via the traditional 510K. About 13% were cleared via the special 510K. And that number has dropped because the number that I usually quote to people is about 22% to the special. So now we have fewer companies doing specials, which, by the way, and uh, this could be the topic of another discussion, John, um, the, re- the explanation for why the number of special 510Ks has dropped in my opinion, is a bit deceptive. Some people might conclude that that means that medical device companies are making fewer changes to existing medical devices. I don't think that's true. I think in reality what's happening is we have even more changes that are being managed via the letter-to-file process and not notifying the FDA via Special 510K. But I want to be clear, that's just my hypothesis. I have no data to back that up because, unfortunately, it's absolutely impossible to measure the number of letter-to-files that are done because nobody reports them. Um, anyway, I just thought that was kind of interesting. The uh, the abbreviated 510K, which is what we're talking about today, is only uh, used about 2% of the time. So a very, very small number of the overall 510Ks are brought to the market has an abbreviated 510K, but that should not mean much to this audience, John, because just because something is uh, not very commonly used doesn't mean that it doesn't have significant advantages. Yeah, and, and uh, I guess I'm a little curious, and again, probably a statistic that would be really hard to, to gather data to try to analyze, but uh, I wonder, you know, FDA came out with those revised guidance documents on when to submit a 510K. I think they formalized those last year, if I recall. But but I wonder if those had any bearing on sort of that shift to the special uh, 510K. I don't know. It's it's a good question. It's an interesting question, one that may not have a, an obvious answer. But, um, you know, I think when I hear the term abbreviated, you know, automatically, I, I mean, I'm looking for an edge as a med device company. I'm, I am looking for that fast track. And you know, sometimes, uh, you know, you hear the horror stories of 510Ks and you've shared statistics before, something like uh, three out of four 510Ks get rejected and all that sort of thing, and, you know, as far as the overall industry is concerned. But I hear the term abbreviated and I think, oh, wow, that's that sounds like an opportunity for a fast track. It sounds like an opportunity for me to do a little bit less work and, and maybe make things a little bit smoother. You know, it's is that? Do you think that's accurate? 
Well, it's a great question, John. I think that it is accurate in the sense that that is the connotation that many people, including many in this industry, have, and that is the abbreviated 510K means that it is abbreviated, that it is shorter in terms of review time, that it is less work in terms of the amount of uh, you know heavy lifting that you have to do and so on. Um, unfortunately, it is simply not true. When you look at the average review times for abbreviated 510Ks, they are comparable to or even greater than the review time for a traditional 510K. So, in, uh, in, and again, I don't want to bog down the audience in a bunch of numbers, but in terms of review times, I would take whatever the average review time is for a traditional 510K in your particular product code, and I would use that number or perhaps double that number for the uh, expected or the anticipated review time for a, um, uh, an abbreviated 510K. The only type of 510K that has a shorter review time is the, is the special 510K. Um, again, to simplify the, the statistics, the special 510K average review time is roughly about 50% of what it is for a traditional 510K within that same product code. So please notice I'm parsing my words carefully here. I'm not looking at average review times for 510Ks across the board because that's way too broad of of a picture. What I'm talking about here are average review times within a particular product code. That's a much narrower slice of the universe. It's a much more apples to apples kind of a comparison. And perhaps in the future, John, we can take a deeper dive into the special 510K, uh, like we're doing today with the abbreviated, um, and talk about those so, those issues in a little bit more detail. But for right now, um, when it comes to the abbreviated 510K, I think what the audience needs to remember is that the abbreviated does not necessarily mean what it what you might think it means. It does not mean um, less time or less work. Um, really, what it means is the is the submission itself is abbreviated, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. Yeah, and and that's probably a good transition to really better understand uh, what goes into an abbreviated five to giving. Obviously, that that word has some meaning, and and you just clarified that it, it doesn't doesn't mean less work. So, what is abbreviated about an abbreviated five ten k? What goes into an abbreviated five ten k? So it's a good question, John. So overall, the format of the abbreviated 510K is very similar. The content, the information is very similar to other types of 510Ks. One might even say that the format of the abbreviated 510K is substantially equivalent to the traditional 510K. I guess, John, you have to be a real regulatory geek to appreciate yeah, I, the humor in that. I, I, <laughs> I, I see what you did there. That, that's, uh, that's subtle, but I like what you did there. Thank you. Uh, but anyway, the, the you know the, the what everybody is probably familiar with the cover sheet, the cover letter, the table of contents, the truthful and accuracy statement, the high level labeling, and so on. All of that is is, is basically the same. And again, FDA has put out uh, guidance on the content of the 510K, and we can certainly provide that to the audience uh, if it would be helpful. The most important thing that's unique to the abbreviated 510K is this whole substantial equivalence comparison to a consensus standard or a guidance or a special control. Just like in a special 510K, where the most important part, the in my opinion, the only important part is the comparison to your existing device and how your change in design uh, will not impact safety, efficacy, performance, dot, dot, dot. 
the most important part, and in my opinion, the only important part of an abbreviated 510K is that um, paper comparison of your substantial equivalence to an existing standard. By the way, John, not to be nitpicky, but um, I think you did mention earlier, and uh, and some people do think this, that in the abbreviated 510K, substantial equivalence is, is, is to a predicate is, um, you know, is not applicable. I wouldn't quite say it that way. All forms of 510Ks, including the abbreviated, you have to show substantial equivalence. But as I said earlier, in the abbreviated 510K, you don't show substantial equivalence to a specific device. Instead, you show it to um, uh, to a consensus standard. Um, yeah, and so that, and if I, go ahead. If I, can, if I can interject for a moment, I mean, I, I think as a practitioner who has put together numerous 510Ks, you know, sometimes getting um, uh, substantial, meaningful information about a predicate device honestly can be a real challenge, uh, frankly. And and there were times that it felt like, you know, I'm trying to make this substantial equivalence argument. I'm I'm pulling the the predicate device 510k summary. I'm, I'm looking at their marketing literature and, and all those sorts of things. And I, and I may get lucky enough to get my hands on. A predicate device and maybe do some head-to-head, but sometimes making that that substantial equivalence uh, argument, if you will, against a, an actual predicate device can be challenging. So I can see where this uh, abbreviated uh, approach, you know, as as an engineer, like you know, that that's appealing to me. Well, you're right, John. That certainly can be a challenge, and this is, in fact, why, as we'll talk about in a moment, here in the United States, the FDA is 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 encouraging people to consider this new 510K alternative, um, where we don't have to make a comparison to uh, an existing device. But here's the way I look at it, John. To be to be totally candid, to be totally frank. That's our problem. That's not FDA's problem. Here in the United States, um, you know, the, the regulation is quite clear. It says that we have to compare our device to an existing device. It, it, how we do that, that's up to us. Whether we do it by uh, obtaining our competitor's device and doing a head-to-head comparison or doing it in some other way, that's totally up to us. But what I have seen happen, believe it or not, John, and perhaps you have as well, I have seen companies literally walk into the FDA. They basically say to them, look, our device is substantially equivalent to the other guy's device, but because we don't have access to the other guy's device or maybe the other guy's device is no longer on the market, we can't do the actual testing to show that it is substantially equivalent, but just kind of take our word for it. You know, we're telling you that it is, you know, FDA is going to tell you go pound sand, you know, and rightfully so, you know, so again, I I don't mean to be harsh, but there are ways, uh, there are lots of ways, in fact, that we can show substantial equivalence. And to be honest with you, John, I don't want the regulation to tell me how to show substantial equivalence. I'm a professional. I know what I'm doing. That's a problem that I need to take ownership of, and I need to figure out how to do it. Um, so I hear what you're saying. You know, to quote a famous politician, I feel your pain. And by the way, this is one of the areas where the the uh, European Union with the new MDRs that are going into effect, um, this is where they're taking an opposite direction to what we're doing here in the United States. They don't like the idea of people using these um, paper comparisons anymore, and they're encouraging people to actually do a uh, comparison to an existing device. 
Um, and as a result, the people in the EU are getting very apprehensive about that for all of the reasons that you just said. You know, what if we can't get access to their data? What if we can't get access to their device? Well, again, in my opinion, that's our problem, not theirs. Yeah, that's a really good point. Really good point. So, talking about um, uh, the abbreviated 510K, I mean, is there anything else that that goes into it that that you think is meaningful or helpful for the audience? Well, so just to conclude in terms of the content, um, as I said a moment ago, what's the most important part are uh, our conformance to the recognized standard or the guidance or special controls or what have you. But I take it a step further. I don't want to just simply uh, show conformance. I want to also show why those particular standards are applicable to us. Um, the regulation does not require us to do that, but I, as a professional biomedical engineer, would always do that in abbreviated 510K. Here's the conformant, uh, I'm sorry, here's the consensus standard that we're going to um, match. And oh, by the way, before I do that, let me tell you why that's the most, that's the appropriate consensus standard to use. And further, to take it even a step further, I don't just talk about simply the standards that I'm using. If there are other standards out there that other people might consider applicable that I'm not going to use for whatever reason, I'm also going to talk about why I'm not using those standards. In other words, this goes back to the statistics that you shared earlier, John, and that is so many 510Ks are rejected. One of the reasons why is because they document not just what they did, but they do not document why they did it, and they do not document what they didn't do and why they didn't do it. Bottom yeah. line, John, my advice is very simple. I want to take away all the possible reasons that I can for FDA disagreeing with me or for saying no. I want to be very proactive, not reactive. Um, and then the last thing to remember is in terms of the um, uh, who's doing the testing, if you're doing the testing, or as I said earlier, if you have a third party doing the testing, that obviously needs to be specified in there as well. Yeah, and, and just uh, just a comment about the previous statement that you made as far as as the uh, what standards apply, which ones don't, and all, all that sort of thing. I, I've seen this in action before, and I'm not saying this is a good practice, but but I. I think so often regulatory professionals who are tasked with getting regulatory clearance uh, on their products, they're um, they're not thinking for themselves. So you know, for example, they will go, they'll identify the product code that applies to the product and regulation, and they're 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 looking to be spoon fed. You know, they're looking for the list of uh, recognized standards for that particular product code. And you know they're they're following those standards blindly at times, or those guidance documents blindly at times. And you know you and I've talked many times about you know just don't just don't just follow blindly down this path. I mean understand what about this standard does fit your product. There, it, it's it's highly likely that that uh, there are parts of that standard that just don't apply to your product. Explain why, you know, and, and but to Mike's point, also explain why it does apply to your product. So just be thorough in that explanation. I could not agree with you more, John. You know, you and I are, are uh, certainly in lockstep here. Um, so basically, you know, as, as John just said, uh, don't just explain what you do. 
but also explain what you're not doing and why you're not doing it. I think that's very good advice. Yeah, and and you, you touched on it a, a bit about the you know, what's happening in the EU, and, and we mentioned at the beginning about this this alternative to the five ten k and all that sort of thing. So you know, it, it's clear. I think everybody's looking for that edge. They're looking for that that fast track, so to speak, or that fast path. You know, maybe you know, touch a little bit more on, on, you know, your Mike Drew's view of the world and, and what's happening from a regulatory perspective. I mean, you, you talked a little bit about the EU perspective, but, you know, obviously you've done some work uh, for folks and, and for Health Canada, folks that are trying to get into that market. It, you know, feels very fluid today as what's happening from a regulatory perspective. There seems to be, at least, you know, from what I'm hearing in the industry, a lot of uncertainty about which, what, what's happening is FDA and EU and Health Canada, and, and it seems like it's creating a lot more obstacles and hurdles. I don't know if you have any thoughts or comments on that. Well, I think, John, that last part, you know me fairly well now. That's a rhetorical question because I always have thoughts and comments to share. Um, so in terms of here in the United States, this is the topic that you and I talked about in our last podcast. And so um, I would encourage your audience to listen to that um, if they're interested. That's why we're doing the follow-up here to the abbreviated. When uh, Dr. Gottlieb, the um, FDA commissioner, just this past December, announced this um, uh, quote-unquote new 510K alternative, which is part of the new least burdensome guidance that came out in December. Um, I'm not saying that Dr. Gottlieb was wrong. He's, you know, I I do have a lot of respect for him. He and I share uh, similar views on a lot of things, but I do think it's a bit deceptive. I do think it's a bit of political hype. This is not a alternative to the 510K. In other words, it's not something that you do instead of uh, or in lieu of a 510K. What Dr. Gottlieb, in my opinion, was emphasizing was this uh, um, abbreviated 510K pathway, which, uh, as John and I have talked about, um, basically um, uh, minimizes, if not eliminate, the necessity for doing a head-to-head predicate comparison and instead do a paper comparison, uh, in this particular case, to a a standard or guidance or or what have you. on the on the other side of the pond, and I know a lot of our audience listens from the EU. To me, this is one of the examples where the U.S. and the EU, more specifically, the new MDRs that are coming into effect, are actually diverging, not converging, because. Here in the United States, as I just said, um, the FDA is now encouraging companies to use this new 510K alternative. In other words, to so show substantial equivalence to a to a, a consensus standard. Whereas in the EU, John, as, as you and perhaps some in your audience know, um, the the new MDRs now are strongly discouraging companies from using the paper comparisons of, of well, they don't call it substantial equivalence, but it's essentially the same thing. And and really encouraging, or some people might even call expecting companies to do an actual uh, head-to-head comparison to an existing predicate device. And I don't know about you, John, but I'm getting um, 
calls and emails from a lot of my customers in the EU who are uh, who, who are generating a lot of apprehension and angst about this um, because um, you know they're asking me how do they get their competitors' data? Um, you know how do they get their competitors' device? I'd love to hear your your thoughts on some of those concerns, John, and how we address them. But as I said earlier, um, I understand the the concerns, but those are our problems. Those are not the regulators' problems. Yeah, I mean, bottom line, and, and it's, it's probably, you know, at a point where we can give some uh, lessons to be learned and some things for, for the listeners to apply to their world. But the first thing is, is um, you got to do your homework, folks. You know, what seemed like a clear path uh, six months, maybe a year ago, uh, you need to, this isn't something that you do one time from, as far as determining regulatory pathways. And then go through your product development efforts, and then a couple of years later, you know, take your uh, come out of the ground to, to look around and, and think that it's going to be the same. This is homework. This is planning. This is something that you need to revisit throughout uh, your product development process, but also throughout uh, your product lifecycle. Because even though you have products in the market, the world is changing, and in some places, it seems like it's getting more challenging and and uh, others are trying to be, well, we'll say, uh, at least on the surface, seem to be a little bit more creative and trying to, to make it um, a faster way or a smoother way. But anyway, uh, bottom line, you have to do your homework. And yeah, one of the predictions that uh, I made for 2018 is that it's going to be harder for medical device companies to get to market and stay in market in the EU because of the MVR, IV, DR changes uh, that are going into effect. Well, I would agree, John, and just taking it a half a step further, um, look, at whether you're doing business in the United States or in the European Union, to me, it really doesn't matter. The content, the information, the, the engineering and the biology is exactly the same. And once, and when it comes to making your comparison, whether you want to use the phrase substantial equivalence here in the United States or not, in this they do in the EU, it really doesn't matter to me. That's a matter of semantics. You have to show that your device is basically the same as the competitor's device, or you have to show that it conforms to those standards. If you're going to do the paper comparison, that's fine. If you're going to, um, but but you 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 and, and and there are a litany of ways. Perhaps John, if you want, we can do another discussion in the future on much more specific ways uh, that we can do this comparison of substantial equivalence, um, especially when we do not have access to one of our competitors' products. I've been involved in countless medical devices over the years where we brought it to the market here in the United States under the 510K, where we did not have physical access to the device. Just a real quick example, just when I was involved with a few months ago, um, it was an in vitro diagnostic. We were making a substantial equivalence argument to a device that was no longer on the market. In fact, it had not been on the market for more than a decade. So it was physically impossible to get a hold of the competitor's advice. Uh, sorry, the competitor's device, because there were just none of them around. And further, there was very little information uh, publicly available in the literature about the technical details of the device. 
So we had to use our imagination. We had to come up with ways. But bottom line, we did it, and we were successful in showing that it was substantially equivalent, and we were successful ultimately in getting the 510K. Is it going to be more difficult to do that, as you suggest, John? Perhaps. But, uh, but you know, just because something is a little harder to do doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way that it shouldn't be done. Well, it's just something yeah, to think about. No, and I, and I see it all the time where sometimes we were looking for the, the, easy, the easiest path uh, or you know, it's a short-sighted thing. You know, we look for the easiest path on the front end but we don't consider the, the long-term ramifications. So, you know, it, it does, it does taking, uh, you, you do have to think, you do have to be a little bit creative. I, I like what you said about using your imagination. Uh, I think uh, sometimes regulatory professionals uh, would use it, uh, using your imagination as not something that a regulatory professional should do, but, but clearly uh, you got to think for yourself. Well, perhaps, uh, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, John, but I'm fairly familiar with what the regulation and the guidance says. I don't recall anywhere in any regulation or guidance that I've ever read where it says that people should think for themselves, that people should be imaginative or creative, or that people should think outside the box. Perhaps we do need to add that to the regulation somewhere. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, in... I mean, by the same token, it also doesn't say you can't. So <laughs> You're exactly correct. It does not say that you can't. <laughs> All right. So um, one thing that, that uh, as, as you've talked and shared about the, the abbreviated 5TK, one, one thing that really jumps out to me as uh, a, a potential lesson to be learned or an action that I can take is... I should leverage this pre-submission uh, path and, you know, to, to engage with FDA. And I, I'm guessing, I know you're a big fan of the pre sub I'm guessing that you would agree with that. I would absolutely agree with that, John. So to wrap this up, um, the best advice I can give to you and your audience in terms of uh, lessons to be learned or advice moving forward, um, and this, by the way, is um, not just simply applicable to the abbreviated 510K, but this is a, a common theme or it should be a common theme across the regulatory universe. First and foremost, be aware of all of the options that you have to bring your device onto the market. In this particular case, we're talking about the 510K, the traditional, the special, and the abbreviated. Be aware of all of the different options, the advantages and the disadvantages of each, so that you can, at the end of the day, choose the most appropriate option that you have Given your circumstances, given your um, uh, technology, given your business objective, given the resources that your company has, and so on, once you're aware of those options and you have chosen the most appropriate one, then you're exactly right, John. Take it to the FDA in advance, whether you do it in the form of a pre-submission meeting or something else. I really don't care, but take it to them and share it with them and sell it to them in advance long before your submission. If you submit, and this is what still to this day many companies do, if your first point of contact on your medical device is your 510K submission, uh, if your first point of contact with the FDA is your actual submission, you might as well just put up a red flag over your submission saying, yeah. kick this right back in my face. Don't even waste your time reading it. You know, so take this to the, to the FDA um, and sell it to them. 
And most importantly, uh, as you and I have talked about today as well as before, be prepared to defend not just what you're doing, but what you're not doing and why. You know, I, I use this metaphor frequently, John. Uh, FDA's most important job when they're doing their job, and they don't always do their job, but when they do, their most important mission, um, job is to uh, criticize everything. So, for example, if we walk into the FDA and we say the sky is blue, FDA's job is to say, okay, prove it. Yeah. It's our job to prove it, and this goes back to what we talked about before with our with our uh, comparison to a standard or to uh, an existing device. It's not good form, in my opinion, to go into the FDA and say, well, our device is substantially equivalent to the other guy's device, but we can't prove it because we can't get our hands on it. I'm sorry, that just doesn't, uh, that just doesn't cut it with me. And last, uh, specifically with regard to the abbreviated 510K, um, as we talked about earlier, also remember that abbreviated doesn't necessarily mean what a lot of people think it means. It doesn't mean less time uh, necessarily. It does not mean less work necessarily. As a matter of fact, uh, one thing I didn't mention earlier, John, when you look at the um, RTA guidance, the refuse to accept guidance, they have checklists for all three uh, 510K types. It turns out that the abbreviated 510K checklist is actually longer than the traditional 510K checklist. There is uh, some irony to be said for that. Yeah. So like I said, you know, abbreviated does not necessarily mean um, abbreviated. Yeah. So those are point. some some final final tips for, for your audience from my perspective. What am I missing, John? I think you, you did a good job of covering all the, the major points. And folks, uh, throughout today's podcast, uh, Mike mentioned that there is a, an FDA guidance on consensus standards that's about a decade or so uh, in existence. I will provide a link to that. Uh, we talked a little bit about what goes into 510K. There's plenty of information from FDA on that. At Greenlight Guru, we also have a content piece that I'll share the link to that as well, as well the ultimate guide to preparing your FDA 510K submission. And then lastly, uh, the refuse to accept checklist is, uh, and that guidance is actually a very good document uh, to to be aware of as you're preparing any type of 510k, frankly, because it gives you uh, some perspective of what a reviewer is going to be expecting as part of your submission. So uh, I highly encourage people to become familiar with that guidance, and, and we'll provide a link to that as well. Uh, as always, I want to thank my guest, Mike Drews, uh, President of Vascular Sciences. Of course, as you are delving into your regulatory strategy, if you have any questions or comments, uh, be sure to reach out to Mike. Uh, a great resource uh, to tap into. A lot of knowledge. He works for FDA and Health Canada and other regulatory bodies, as well as numerous medical device companies all over the world. And lastly, want to remind you all that Greenlight Guru is, is also here to help. Our EQMS software platform uh, consists of several products uh, that, that are intended to help you during the product development process. Our Go platform has workflows for design controls and risk management, which are crucial components to any sort of 510K or any sort of regulatory submission, as well as our Grow platform for when you go to market to help you better manage things like customer feedback and CAPA. So if you're interested in learning more about Greenlight Guru, be sure to go to www.greenlight.com.
www.guru and click on the blue button to learn more information. And as always, this is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear, and you have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.